Hello, and welcome to the LRB podcast and the first episode of a new short series of close readings, looking at how history was transformed in the Romantic period. I'm Rosemary Hill, and over the four episodes coming out every other week for the next eight weeks, my guests and I will be examining how the study of history and attitudes to the past changed radically in the decades after 1789. We'll be going to Balmoral in the British Museum via Wardour Street, the Bayer Tapestry and the Battlefield of Waterloo. But we're starting this week with the place, or at least one of the places, where it all began, Salisbury Cathedral in 1789. And to help me, I'm joined by Dr Thomas Stammers, Associate Professor of Modern European Cultural History at Durham University. Hello, Tom. Hello, Rosemary. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. And I know you're going to want to take us to France in the summer of 1789. But before we go there, I want to talk about what was happening in Wiltshire in the summer of of 1789, which was that there was a huge row going on at the cathedral, at Salisbury Cathedral. And the, the essence of the row was about the work that was going on inside the cathedral at the behest of the bishop, paid for in part by King George III and being carried out by James Wyatt, who was a kind of star architect of the day. And what they were doing was improving the cathedral in line with Georgian neoclassical taste. So Wyatt was removing medieval tombs, moving the body of St Osmond, the founder of the cathedral, um, of the original cathedral, taking out stained glass, generally kind of lightening and brightening the interior, whitewashing over the ceiling paintings. And this was pretty much standard Georgian practice for improvement. And what was unusual in this case was that a small group of antiquaries, chiefly Richard Goff, who was the director of the Society of Antiquaries, actually stood up and said, you shouldn't do this. And nobody would really taken that line before, that you would preserve historic fabric simply because it was historic. So it was a kind of a moment when you begin to see an idea, normally ideas change very slowly over time, but this is a kind of a moment where you just see it happening. Absolutely. And Goff's intervention, sometimes described as the first preservationist manifesto. I mean, this is Goff leading other antiquaries to take up arms in defence of Salisbury. Um, And the campaign is going to be fought in the pages of the Gentleman's Magazine. Interestingly, a magazine owned by John Nichols, not directly related to the Society of Antiquaries, of which Richard Goff was director, but a space in which they wanted to communicate with a broader public about what they saw as the sacrilegious violation of, of ancient Salisbury by James Wyatt. I think it's a key moment because it really demonstrates the shift from antiquarians being figures who simply record the past, you know, document the past and inventory it, to now becoming a kind of campaign group, sort of lobbying for the defence of uh, the monuments of Britain. In some ways, Goff's Uh, intervention and this intervention by the other antiquaries looks ahead. You know, you have to fast forward into the 19th century. Um, It looks ahead to kind of endeavours like that by the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings in the 1870s to try and raise public awareness to protect medieval and ancient British monuments. Well, it's such a, in a way, such a familiar thing to do now, to, you know, write articles in the newspaper, get people to sign petitions and and protest, that you kind of have to, when I first started looking at this, I had to really look hard and think, well, actually, this was completely new. And Goff himself says, well, you know, I probably shouldn't speak up because I come from the humble rank of antiquaries. And they were really taking on the whole 
establishment and the philosophical attitude to the past, that it wasn't just an improvement. If you thought differently than from the past, then you were better. Maybe that was not the case. So this is a huge shift, cultural shift, and it does happen really over a period of, maybe over a period of a year. But that moment in the summer of 1789 in Salisbury, you can really pinpoint it. And it strikes at the heart that every era of the past has its own integrity, you know, and that's both the kind of physical category, thinking about the care for the fabric of ancient buildings, but it's also a moral category. And I think for these people, it is absolutely a kind of ethical question that the differences of the past, the diversity of the past have to be respected in their own right, even if it deviates from 18th century standards of taste or 18th century conventions. Um, Wyatt himself, it's hard to kind of stick up for James Wyatt these days, I feel. I'm speaking particularly as somebody with a connection to the northeast of England. At Durham, James Wyatt planned, indeed, the destruction of the Galilee Porch, which is this fantastic chapel at the front, so the west end of Durham Cathedral, where the Venerable Bede is buried, the great founder of English history. Wyatt wanted to sweep that away, and he indeed is guilty of demolishing the chapter house at Durham as well. Wyatt really in Durham, I mean, I don't know how far you see that as representative of a bigger campaign that he's waging against medieval buildings. Well, I don't think I would be the last person to defend James Wyatt, but I think he wasn't really campaigning against medieval buildings. But Barrington, the bishop, again, one has to think back into the mindset of the time. Bishop Barrington was not a bad person. He was a very wealthy man who used a lot of his private money for the emancipation campaign, but he just couldn't see why if he wanted to get his carriage right up to the west door of the cathedral and there was this wiggly old building in the way, why he shouldn't just knock it down. So he asked Wyatt, Wyatt by the 19th century, of course, is known universally as Wyatt the Destroyer. And it's unfortunate in a way because he was a good architect when he was building his own designs. But there are very few architects. Christopher Wren was an exception. Very few architects to this day who had any respect for other architects' work. What they want to do is knock it all down and start again. It makes me think of Pugin referring to Mr Wyatt of execrable memory in the pages of Contrasts. Well, yes, he did. And uh, there was no one really to stick up for Wyatt by the end, which means that his original work, as I say, is rather underrated. But he behaved very badly. He pickaxed all the medieval wall paintings in St Stephen's Chapel quite unnecessarily as an act of pure revenge. He was also, by that stage, it must be said, drinking very heavily. And generally, the career was off the rails. But despite that, as I say, to be historically minded, you have to understand that neither George III was a man of great taste and erudition, the bishop was not a bad man at all, Wyatt was a good architect, but these were the established norms of taste and these were the people who made the decisions. And what was unusual was that the antiquaries not only contradicted them, but they contradicted them in print and they stuck to their guns. And this hadn't happened before. It was a revolutionary gesture. And, you know, we could even think about the antiquaries, I think you do in your book rather cheekily, as antiquarians sans culottes. But at the same time as the Bastille is falling in Paris, we're seeing this challenge on the cultural establishment in Wiltshire. Well, you are seeing... In, on both sides of the channel in very different formats, the voices, the lives of the people being taken very seriously in a way that they hadn't been before. I think one thing that's so interesting about those late 18th century antiquarians is that they're looking back to a tradition of early modern scholarship, you know, particularly kind of Elizabethan with William Camden or 17th century antiquarians uh, such as 
William Dugdale, who did that great work on the pre-Reformation architectural landscape. Um, and so I think that some of that confidence that you talk about, Rosemary, comes from that sense that they are putting themselves in a lineage and they're very keen for people to better understand that antiquarian tradition. And indeed, they're sort of republishing it and re-editing it and, and making it visible again. You know, they're giving themselves a sort of pedigree. Yes, there's this great gap, isn't there, in the 18th century where the last edition of Camden's Britannia is done. And then, of course, intellectually, the focus moves towards the, the classical world and the idea of just studying local local history, national history. There were, I mean, there were no British objects in the British Museum. It was all classical. And the awareness of, yes, the tradition, and the, it's when they write about rescuing, as it were, and there is a sense of rescuing their ancestors and finding... Aubrey, for example, one of the greatest of the antiquaries, uh, who left all his papers in a great mess, which is quite an antiquarian tradition in itself. Um, and they start to sort of try and put these things together to publish Leland and so on and to re-edit Camden's Britannia. And yes, I think part of what's going on is a rediscovery of um, an early modern sense of history as landscape, not merely as chronology. And also, of course, quite soon after 1789, you couldn't travel very easily on the continent because it was at war. So you began to look more at your own landscape and to wonder what all these ruins were and what had gone on. It's interesting also in that revolutionary moment of the 1790s, thinking about the impact of other political upheavals like the Civil War or the Reformation in, in spurring that kind of act of reclamation by, by earlier scholars. Um, you talk about the disorderliness of Aubrey, which for which he was famous. I mean, I suppose there is a problem with some of those ancestors that they were sometimes ill-tempered individuals, that sometimes they could be quick to quarrel, uh, that intellectually their projects perhaps never really reached fruition. And I wonder, at the same time as there's something celebratory about those early modern antiquarians, they also help produce, I suppose, some of the stereotypes that we have about antiquarians today, or indeed stereotypes that were circulating in the 18th century, that these are figures who perhaps are rugged uh, as as uh, Dr. Johnson said, uh, individuals who might be mean, who might be kind of quick to quarrel, uh, who might be intellectually messy, who might be taken up with slightly delusional uh, theories. And I'm thinking here of someone like William Stukeley and his interest in the Druids of Stonehenge. I mean, is there a way in which antiquarians are also having to sort of fight off some of the nasty stereotypes and nasty generalisations that are made about their ancestors? Well, I suppose that's true. I mean, Having written about antiquaries quite a lot, I always find myself resisting when people say, you know, these eccentric characters. You think, well, I mean, look at modern academics. None of this, I'm saving your presence, <laughs> none of this kind of stuff is unknown in universities today. And there were people, I mean, John Leland, if we're thinking about ancestors, Leland was really the first antiquary. Henry VIII sent him out at the beginning of the Reformation to make catalogues of everything that was in the monasteries, particularly the libraries. I imagine because he wanted to see what was coming his way. And poor Leland went on, and as he went on and the Reformation went on and the, these things, the collections were being dispersed, the libraries were being looted, he went mad with it all. But then again, you get in the 18th century, Thomas Hearn coming along and saying, oh dear, oh dear, all this very good work lying around. And so the other way of looking at it is that there's a great spirit of collaborative scholarship 
people picking up Aubrey's papers. I mean, people are still, 300 years later, Kate Bennett is working very hard on Aubrey and his waste paper baskets. So I think that there is a very strong sense of collaboration. I mean, some people were mean with their research and wouldn't share it always that's the case. But mostly you have a very strong sense of collaboration in the present and to some extent collaboration with, um, with, with an intellectual dissent, I think. Thomas Hearn demonstrates some of the sort of political sensitivities, of course, around antiquarianism as well, you know, famously losing his job at the Bodleian because of his Jacobite sympathies. I wanted to go back this sort of interesting point about how does the antiquarian tradition coexist with the sort of enlightenment in the 18th century? How does it fit into bigger kind of intellectual traditions? In that it's often said that with enlightenment history, the emphasis really shifts towards the history of ideas. And in particular, thinking about, you know, broad narratives, sort of philosophical narratives that are able to kind of link together big periods of history. Whereas the antiquarian is there in his hyper descriptive mode, you know, is really interested in the materiality of the object, is doing something that is not interested in sort of big picture narrative, but is much more kind of wedded to the sort of individual datum, the sort of individual material. Um, and do you think that there's a there's a difference of intellectual styles maybe between what we're seeing as a sort of enlightenment belletristic kind of mode of writing and what the antiquaries are doing that explains why figures like Voltaire lash out at monkish erudition? Well, it's uh, it's quite hard to know when it first becomes usual to use the adjective mere in front of antiquarianism, mere antiquarianism. But you don't have to stop with the facts, but their argument was it would help if you started with the facts rather than just starting with a giant philosophical span. And, of course, the idea of Voltaire's point about monkishness and, indeed, a lot of, still in England in the 18th century, there's a lot of prejudice against monkish learning because Voltaire was an atheist and the English, of course, were violently anti-Catholic. So there is a reason why the two approaches feel threatened by each other, because they are. But at the same time, there's a lot of, there's a great deal of overlap. I mean, the antiquaries wanted facts and then they wanted to put facts together. And although there are people who just get the facts and then stop, there will always have been, there always will be, People like John Lingard or the people who were writing, the, or Milner writing the histories of Gothic architecture, they were getting their facts and then they were putting them together and seeing what story they told rather than coming with their story and trying to fit the facts in. It makes me think that you could say that Edmund Gibbon, sorry, Edward Gibbon, is a figure who's able to reconcile those sort of philosophical narratives and the sort of antiquarian material histories, you know, pretty successfully. You mentioned earlier the the tension, I suppose, between the love of the classical past, you know, you think of the 18th century as the society of the dilettanti and the grand tour, versus this interest in a sort of national vernacular tradition. I wonder if part of the kind of interesting quality of the 18th century is that many people were trying to find ways of reconciling the two, that this kind of interest in reclaiming the medieval past in Britain didn't necessarily put you at odds with an interest in Greco-Roman antiquity. I'm minded of the recent exhibition at Strawberry Hill, the Horace Walpole uh, show where they brought together back the treasures of Strawberry Hill. And you really got a sense of Walpole, not just someone who's interested in the English early modern past, something that he partly derives from the antiquarian George Virtue, of course, at the start of the century, but also a man who's corresponding with collectors in Rome, you know, and in Florence, uh, who's really interested in what Mariette is doing with the history of art in Paris, that there's a kind of European Walpole who's also extremely interested in classical antiquity. And I suppose, in a way, we don't want to make it overly binary, that you're either a goth 
or you're a kind of classicist in the 18th century. I know exactly that that does happen later on. But no, I mean, Walpole, of course, is the most fascinating and vitally important figure in all of this. Strawberry Hill, Walpole's little little house, as he referred to it, which is at Twickenham, which, of course, when he acquired it, was a village outside London, which he said was absolutely thick with dowagers. He loved it there. Um, And he was within sight of Pope's Villa, and he built... It was an extraordinary thing to do at that date, to build a house from scratch, which had no medieval foundations or anything, in a Gothic style. It was just a very peculiar thing to do. And, of course, he wrote the first Gothic novel, and he set the first Gothic novel in the first Gothic house. And really... It would be difficult to exaggerate his importance in this turn away from the purity of of the idea that you just had, if you had any taste at all, you had to put classical um, art and architecture above everything else. But it was very much done in a slightly coat-trailingly camp way as the taste of a very particular kind of gentleman. And it was really almost a century before it became a popular taste. And in the meantime, it's just in transition all the time. But Walpole's collection of things, and people laughed at him for collecting things like the mirror that had belonged to John Dee, the mathematician at Elizabeth's court, or indeed a clock that uh, Henry VIII gave to Anne Boleyn. Fabulous objects. But people just thought, you know, old Horry and his knickknacks. I wonder if some of that is to do with the fact that in the 18th century, you know, to be a true connoisseur, it's about an appreciation of formal beauty. And actually that interest in provenance, that idea that objects have a history is, and that, that that history is part of their value, I think is still probably an emerging kind of perception in the, in the 18th and it certainly becomes much more important in the 19th century, that sort of anecdotal sense that an object is related to a famous person really kind of uh, expands, I think, during this period. Yes, there's the whole, well, the whole idea of the association of ideas, this picturesque idea, which is very much where romanticism and the study of the past come together, that it's not just what the thing is, it's how you feel about it, how, you, how it makes you feel. And, of course, one might think, well, that's just very fanciful and unintellectual, but I, I always think it's actually more realistic because the truth is that you do have a subjective response to objects. We all do, and that doesn't mean that we think they are more or less important exactly, but if you have a tiny little cloud study, watercolour cloud study, and you know it's by Constable, then you're going to like it more than if it was just, it might be just as good, but done because it's just a brief sketch done by someone who no one's ever heard of two weeks ago. So I think that that willingness to enter into a dynamic relationship with the past, which is very much what romanticism brought to history or history brought to romanticism, is terribly important to Walpole. And Walpole was way ahead of everyone else in that. Another reason why Walpole, I guess, becomes lampooned at certain times is these sort of Catholic affectations as well. You know, you go to Strawberry Hill and you see the abbot's cell. Uh, And it would be useful, I think, to just think a little bit about the sheer number of Catholics that are involved in these antiquarian enterprises at the end of the 18th century. John Carter 
probably a closet Catholic. Uh, but then there are much more militant Catholics, you know, figures like John Milner, who becomes Catholic bishop. And in particular, my favourite, John Lingard, a man who uh, indeed had studied on the continent, to go back to your point about European connections. He'd been at the English College at, at Dowie um, and then comes back and writes pretty explosive stuff about the Reformation and also about sort of the Anglo-Saxon church. And so it's really interesting, I think, that this is a moment in which there's a sort of Catholic whether it's a Catholic Renaissance, but certainly a kind of Catholic self-confidence, that they're willing to sort of challenge some of these hoary old narratives about English exceptionalism or about the English church and reclaim a period of history from, from its detractors. One of the things you notice when you get interested in antiquaries is how many of them are in one way or another outsiders. Uh, they're not mostly gentlemen or upper class, and an enormous number of them are Catholics. I mean, in terms of the proportion in relation to the population at large. And one reason, of course, is that you know Catholics couldn't go to university. They couldn't study through the conventional means. So they were interested in this. But the other reason, I think, is because the Reformation was for Anglicans, Catholics, many people in England and indeed in Scotland. It was the determining event of English history. And in the period, in the end of the 18th century into the 19th century this huge campaign for Catholic emancipation, the Reformation, everyone was going over it all over again. I mean, all over John Lingard's um, unpopularity was due to the fact that he published a book based on the actual facts, which showed that unlike what Dugdale said, the first church in England was not founded at Glastonbury by Joseph of Arimathea. But this sense that the English had that they were Catholics, but not Roman Catholics, went very deep. And indeed, Robert Southey, who became Poet Laureate, got involved in a big fight with, with Lingard and others. Um, and there was this fear of Catholic conspiracy. I mean, the Jacobites, it wasn't so long, 1745, that uh, the young pretender got an army as far south as Derby. So people were frightened um, of Catholics, pretty unreasonably, but uh, it meant it was impossible for uh, when history did become um, a university subject in the way that we think of it now. They were still, in the 19th century, wouldn't use Lingard's text because although it was the most reliable history of England available, it is not desirable that English history should be taught by a Catholic, was, was what was said. It's striking that that sense of English exceptionalism also feeds into the debates around the Gothic, obviously, which are happening in these antiquarian circles. And it's really interesting to think about how they're searching in the Gothic for both the kind of example of Englishness and the only way that they can sort of study that architectural style is through continental comparison. You know, they have to think about what's happening in Europe, but they also don't want to be told that they're merely derivative of what's happening in Europe. So there's a really interesting sort of push-pull thing of thinking about the Gothic makes you think about your Europeanness. But within that study, many of them are very reluctant to have English Gothic made just a subsection of what Abbot Suger is doing back in Saint-Denis. And it's quite striking, John Carter, again, in the context of the 1790s, particularly, you know, passionately anti-Jacobin figure, rejects very forcefully the thesis of George Whittington, which from what I understand was the first real attempt to kind of identify the origin of the Gothic at Saint-Denis. During the war, I suppose one can understand people being very anti the idea that the whole thing was French. Though people were less nationalist. I mean, John Carter was a very bad-tempered person in general, so he hated the French. And he hated the upper classes and the fact that George Whittington was the person who had 
put this all together and who was a gent and best friends with the Earl of Aberdeen and everything. Carter had just this kind of mutual inverse snobbery that Aberdeen thought the Gothic was a waste of time and Carter thought that the upper classes were a waste of time. So nobody was listening to anybody. And like a lot of arguments, it went on long after it had been settled. There were people like that. I think on the whole, though, people... I mean, it's this curious thing about the Gothic that is both national and international. And towards the middle of the period, after the war, when the continent opened up again, all through the war, there was correspondence between England and France on the antiquarian level. Not least because there were a lot of French refugees, particularly the clergy, who washed up in England. And one of the figures who springs to mind is the Abbé de la Rue, who actually, he was he chased out of France, but then found that he made this kind of involuntary study tour of London and Oxford and then went back to France. So they were putting together, and out of that came the idea of Anglo-Normandy, which was both English and French, and the idea of Gothic as Northern. And it, it went on being both national and international, but not classical. And those connections that are formed during the period of the emigration, I guess, continue to ripen and really bloom once we get to the other side of the Napoleonic Wars. And in the 1810s and 1820s, those sort of picturesque tours within Normandy. I remember the wonderful exhibition at Dulwich a few years ago about John Sell Cotman in Normandy, working for the Norfolk banker Dawson Turner, to go and produce these fantastic sort of topographic records of, of Norman churches um, and the geology of Normandy as well. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. If you're enjoying this series, you might like to read the many pieces by Rosemary Hill in the LRB archive. Subscribe to the London Review of Books today to save 79% off the cover price and get a free tote bag. Just go to lrb.me forward slash history. That's lrb dot me forward slash history or click on the link below this offer is only available for a limited time as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either that's why if you're a b2b marketer you should use linkedin ads LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Just to take a step back, uh, I wonder, before we get to Napoleon, I guess we should say a little bit about the bit before Napoleon and namely return to some of the issues related to the French Revolution. One thing that's really striking is that the British debate around heritage is happening in parallel with this drastic overhaul of heritage within France after the fall of the monarchy in 1789. Many people arguing that it is the French Revolution that's at the origin of the idea of national heritage, le patrimoine, as the property of the crown and the church and the aristocracy is reclaimed symbolically by the nation. 
And it's really interesting to think about how antiquarians in France are themselves kind of trying to sort of imaginatively appropriate those objects. Aubin Millin, in particular, with his Antiquité Nationale, trying to say, look, these pieces of private property, of ecclesiastical wealth, are actually now the property of all citizens. Um, how far do you think British observers were thrilled or excited by this sort of adventure in the creation of a national heritage or the kind of nationalisation of cultural assets? Well, it was all such a shock, wasn't it? And there were people who said at the time, and one can see it now, that, and indeed plenty of French people who said it, that, that the revolution did for France in certain ways what the Reformation had done for England. But the English and Scots had had time to digest the Reformation. The problem with public ownership, and it's the same now, I mean, it was only in the 20th century that Stonehenge finally became public property after centuries of campaigning. And as soon as it becomes public property, that was when the real fighting started, the literal physical fighting at Stonehenge. So when you say everything belongs to everyone, then in practice, often it doesn't belong to anyone. So the kind of the French antiquarians at that period are just scrambling to save things and particularly from an ideological point of view. I mean, the man who stood up and said that they shouldn't destroy the bishop's throne in Rouen Cathedral because all these things were, there was a revolutionary terror. The argument was these things are all symbolic of monarchy. They're symbolic of Christianity. We've got rid of all these things. We have to destroy all these objects. Um, And the poor chap who stood up for um, the bishop's throne in Rouen was guillotined. It was very, very dangerous to try and protect any kind of monument which had any symbol of anything, as I say, religious or Christian. And since most, I mean, the, the English had been through all this, Dugdale and his collaborator, Dodsworth, were working through the civil wars. Dodsworth was copying out all the charters in York, which were then blown up a couple of years later. So there was an English antiquarian tradition of working in the teeth of civil disorder and and violence and destruction. And the French were, in some cases, like Balzac's rather reluctantly, brought to, but in other cases very enthusiastically, they they imported the English antiquaries as fast as they could once things calmed down for for advice. You know, what are we going to do with all this stuff? Because the idea of having municipal museums, I mean, it's a jolly good idea, but there was no money, there were no buildings. I mean, nobody thought thought it through, (laughs) to put it mildly. And much, as exactly as you say, much of these cultural institutions are in a shocking state of neglect over the course of the 1790s, that despite the fact nominally these are part of national property, as you say, everything is in a much more ad hoc, much more improvised kind of state of affairs. The great hero, I guess, at this moment is Alexandre Lenoir in France, who is willing to risk personal uh, life and limb in order to protect historic property, in particular his defence of the tomb of Cardinal Richelieu, I believe, in the Sorbonne. Lenoir's a fascinating character because he's trained as an artist as a young man and initially was working under a very reputed French artist, Pierre, I believe. And then his master disappears in the early days of the revolution to go and start a new career in Russia. And as a result, Lenoir has to himself cobble together or kind of take over the job of protecting um, the storehouse of medieval and Renaissance artworks that had been piling up 
in the former convent of the Petit Augustin. It's Lenoir who then, from that basis, goes on this sort of salvage crusade to try and rescue other works of art that he hears about being endangered, both within Paris, but also in chateaus outside, in places like Equin. And his most glorious episode, perhaps, is uh, his heroic defence of the tombs in the Basilica of Saint-Denis. Now, Saint-Denis is where the French monarchs had been buried for many centuries. There are totally exceptional 16th century tombs of the Valois kings there. But at the end of 1793, uh, a group of sans-culottes had broken into the basilica and indeed, in their fury against the monuments of the monarchy, didn't just sort of smash open a variety of these tombs. They also took the royal bodies, gathered them together and threw them into a bonfire of quicklime. Um, it was said at the time that the idea was not simply to you know, get rid of the offensive symbols of the Ancien Régime, but to remove the memory that monarchy had ever existed in France. This is a kind of radical act of cultural and historical purification. It's Lenoir there who you know, risks his own neck to save some of these tombs and these other uh, monuments which are then relocated into the convent of the Petit Augustin and which in 1795 he will open as the Musée des Monuments Francais. Uh, Lenoir, we think of him as a great figure, as I say, in a Parisian context, but he had a very large international network. It's worth remembering his correspondence with figures in England right through the conflict. You know, Lord Carlisle at Castle Howard is writing to Lenoir kind of regularly in this period. He also tries to sell some of the objects that he salvaged to English buyers. And so some of the stained glass from Equin, uh, he's very keen to try and sell through the London market. And indeed, he finds a kind of customer in William Beckford. He's a man who has a very long life. I mean, he lives down to the 1830s. And as a result, he's able to see the sort of full flowering of this new kind of antiquarian sensibility that he in France has played such an important role in setting up. It was an extraordinary lifespan. And that that, that moment in Saint-Denis when the Abbé Grégoire coined the expression vandalisme for what was going on, to seeing through his son the beginnings of the foundation of the Musée de Cluny. So, yeah, I mean, he just a bit of sharp practice, but frankly, somebody who hadn't been nimble in that way would never have got away with what he did or saved what he saved. And, of course, the criticism, which was also made by Walter Scott, that what you got in the Museum of uh, Monument Francais was kind of deracinated fragments. Well, yes, but it, it was not Lenoir who deracinated them. And I don't know what you think, but I feel when I go to Saint-Denis now, where, of course, they've all been put back, but it's almost as if the spinal cord was cut. That place feels so dead. It doesn't feel like Westminster Abbey, with which there is an obvious parallel. It feels as if it was it was killed. Absolutely. It, it feels inert. There is now the memorial to Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette that's there in yes. terms of a, a subsequent you know, royal burial. But yes, it does feel like its history is radically interrupted at that point. The one other thing I'd say about Lenoir, he was obviously just brilliant eye for mise-en-scene. I mean, the way he stages history in these rooms, you know, and you have to look at the wonderful watercolours produced of the Musée des Monuments Francais, to get a sense of the theatricality, the kind of thrilling lighting effects that he was that he was creating in the museum. And it should be said that the museum was a like, laboratory for other French romantic painters. Um, yes. Not much appreciated in Britain today, but figures like Pierre Evoile or Fleury Richard, the troubadour school of painters in France, many of them are absolutely nourished on Lenoir's museum and that they're kind of deliberately uh, sort of trained 
to look at monuments and kind of think about reimagining the past through the spaces that Lenoir's created. It's yes, and even now, I mean, the the, the convent is now the Ecole de Beaux Arts, but the chapel is still there, and a few of the bits are oddly, bizarrely, still lying around. And when you th- th- that sense that when you entered the chapel, this great height and the light, I mean. It, it is possible just to get a f- tiny shiver of what it must have been like. And um, I do know that British visitors were particularly excited when they got to Paris for going to see Lenoir's museum. You know, they go to Paris and they both want to see the Louvre with all of the plunder from the French armies, the sort of masterpieces of Europe. But they're also really attracted to Lenoir's museum. It made a huge impression on not just French visitors throughout the 1790s, but also particularly those British visitors who were able to travel to France for the first time in 1802 because of the Peace of Amiens. I'm thinking of figures like Dawson Turner. The other thing that was extraordinary was that actually Lenoir's catalogue was translated into English during, can you imagine, the middle of the of the Revolutionary Wars. People were terribly interested in it. And I think, I mean... One of the things that he did, which is something that we think about a lot now, was to preserve objects by recontextualising them. So instead of saying, you know, this is a monument to a king or to a cardinal, he said, no, 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 this is the history of France told through its material culture. So the recontextualising of the objects was what saved them. That and the fact that Lenoir was both extremely brave, physically brave. I mean, he did lose a finger defending Richelieu's uh, tomb. And so he got hold of the abandoned Convent of the Pidio Gostin, which is, of course, slap bank opposite the Louvre, on opposite sides of the Seine. So he's setting up on the south bank this recontextualised exhibition, which is presented as a narrative. And that was what was so new to everybody, going to a museum where you didn't just admire beautiful objects because they were beautiful. It's what you were saying earlier about provenance and context, narrative, the picturesque, which the English were completely, British were completely immersed in, and the French increasingly so. So passing through history, passing through time, surrounded by these mostly beautiful, but all interesting, curious, that wonderful romantic term, curiosity, which is both an abstract and a concrete noun, which permeates the whole period. And it's where this idea of authenticity that you were talking about earlier comes in, because in the Elysian Garden at the back of the convent, Lenoir had put together the tomb of Abelard and Eloise, which was made up out of all sorts of things, including part of the tomb of Abelard and Eloise, but a lot of other stuff as well. And I cobbled it all together and planted trees around it. And people knew that. He didn't pretend that this was anything other than a a sort of composed piece. But people still felt very deeply moved by it. And indeed, after the museum was taken apart, that tomb's in in Paris, in um, Perrachaise. But, and people still go and visit it. But the other thing, of course, because Lenoir was so clever at adapting his narrative as time went by to the revolution then to Napoleon and so on, by the time the monarchy was restored, he defended everybody and it became a matter of urgency for the restored monarchy to just dismantle this museum. So all the way through this period, the, the collecting of these apparently dull bits and bobs is intensely political. 
And the grieving for the loss of that museum obviously becomes part of French romanticism into the 19th century. You know, the young Victor Hugo seeing the dispersal of the museum, Michelet talking about going to the museum and it convincing him of his historical vocation. In many ways, you could think about 19th century French antiquarians deliberately reassembling in some ways what Lenoir had tried to do. The great museum of the Middle Ages in Paris today at Cluny, uh, which was bought by the French state in 1842 and created by Alexandre du Sommerat, in some ways is explicitly an attempt to kind of renew Lenoir's vision. This combination of archaeology and sentimentalism uh, is, a, is a very heady brew in this period. And I think it exactly con- connects to what you were saying about the romantic willingness to kind of go beyond the mere facts, that you need to supply this kind of imaginative connection, that there's a space for reverie in the relationship with the past that that comes through very strongly. One other element, I suppose, of the revolutionary situation is the sheer number of Britons who are in Paris, uh, at least until they become national enemies, very keen to take advantage of the dispersals and the destruction that's going on, that there's a real sense that this is an opportunity for antiquarians as well as you know, lamenting the fall of the French monarchy, some of them, they're very interested to benefit from some of its sort of material legacies. I'm thinking of William Beckford, most notoriously on the prowl for bits of luxury furniture and luxury goods. But there are lots of others too. I mean, that Paris is a sort of shopping opportunity for antiquarians who really seize a kind of windfall here. There was, well, Beckford, of course, is exceptional, partly because he was so rich and partly because he was so completely unmoved by the distress. He was saying, it's marvellous, you can get a box at the opera any old time. You can rent places really cheaply. Uh, And he was, yes, I mean, horribly detached, really, from, from, from everything. But no people who, I mean, the truth about art throughout history, art and artifacts, is they always follow the money. And people were antiquaries and others the English were particularly rapacious, though, because Dawson Turner is a rather shocking, normally very upright um, Quaker banker type. But he has a passage where he says, you know, he'd been travelling around Normandy and a lot of the stained glass, medieval stained glass in the churches is still there. And he said, well, that wouldn't happen in England. You know, <laughs> someone would have had that out. And you think, oh, well, hmm. Um, that's not very nice. But no, I mean, the English were known to be rapacious. And the argument that went on that goes on now. I mean, you know, had this stuff been looted by Napoleon's army and therefore was being uh, liberated, or was it perfectly safe until Lenoir or one of the English antiquaries came along and said, you know, that's a very nice set of choir stalls. I'll give you X for it. And I think it's striking you mentioned Dawson Turner because he also is there, I think, when the Louvre is being packed up, uh, when the Allies have come to Paris... And, you know, on the one hand, they're grateful to see the the downfall of the tyrant Napoleon. But he does feel mixed feelings when he sees the Titians being sort of packed off and sent back to Spain. The sense that, you know, that it's a shame that they're going back into private ownership. They're going back into a country that won't be able to care for them properly. You know, the revolution represents this, this huge opportunity to think about what is good stewardship. You know, who deserves to own the masterpieces of antiquity and on, on whose account are they being held? I think it's it's really striking then that we've got this kind of flow across the channel of both artefacts and things, but also scholars and ideas. How far do you think when we get to the 1820s, this creates the scope really to think about Anglo-French history as something that's much more sort of entangled and combined? You know, this new idea, as you said, of Anglo-Normandy, that the kind of contacts formed over those two decades actually create a new way of thinking about the shared histories of 
uh, England and France. Certainly, the relations between England and France, as far as the history, there was never the it was never kind of mutual hatred. And often, of course, people took different views. La, the Abbe Larue's great friend, Francis Daus, who was both a collector and an antiquary, and whose bequest to the Ashmolean is one of the richest in its entire history. But he was all for Napoleon. And, of course, the Abbe Larue is writing back very crossly from France saying, no, and when the when the English sent Napoleon, it is extraordinary reading these letters because you see history happening. And when the British had sent Napoleon to Elba, Larue writing furiously to Dow saying, "You're mad! It's not far enough. He'll be back." And of course he was. But so the the, the fraught relations at a political level, but the idea of Anglo-Normandy, I think, was very comforting to the English because technically, of course. Normandy still belongs to England. I mean, the Queen holds the Channel Islands in her capacity as Duke of Normandy. Bizarrely. So it, it wasn't giving anything up to have this. It'd be nice to, as we sort of wrap up, think about how the identity of the antiquary has sort of transformed over this period. You know, we've been thinking about the sort of combative figure of, in the Salisbury dispute in 1789. And then as we move into the 19th century, obviously the antiquary as a figure is going to be hugely popularised, you know, not least through the fiction of Walter Scott with his great novel The Antiquary from 1816, but also then seeping into all of these other English and French texts. And I wonder how far the antiquary is becoming somebody who's not just interested in the preservation of the past, but becoming a kind of visionary, that there's something perhaps maybe not mystical, but there's certainly something kind of deeply mysterious about the antiquary. And I know that you don't want to make them too eccentric, uh, Rosemary, but in the age of eccentricity, in the Romantic period, this sort of fascination with the antiquary as having a kind of almost an occult power, I think starts to become more and more visible. Um, I'm thinking of the novels of Balzac, you know, The Wild Ass's Skin, where you famously go into the antique shop and you buy the object which grants your wishes. But there is something increasingly mysterious or increasingly fantastical about the antiquary that's becoming visible in the sort of 1810s and 1820s. It's interesting, isn't it, how this figure, because there's always a little bit of the kind of the idea of the alchemist going all the way back to Walpole wanting John Dee's dark mirror. It floats around in the background and it comes and goes. And I think, well, certainly in France, the, the antiquary's shop in the wild ass's skin, this is a scene of horror and devastation of it's described as if it's just a shop, but it is the past, the immediate past of France where everything has been thrown into chaos and the past is a nightmare. Victor Hugo begins to impose a kind of order on this um, in Notre Dame. But no, I think that sense, in the, it, it, as with so many aspects of England and France and antiquarianism and history at this period, the, the English, British, Scottish version is Walter Scott's, which is humorous if there's a hint of mystery in in a painting like the antiquary's cell where there's no figure just this sort of glowing chair and but you can kind of tell that all of these mysterious objects have been bought in soho and just kind of put up in in ew cook's studio it's a very it's a lovely painting in vna and it has this little aura of glowing mystery about it but there's nothing really sinister nothing really frightening about it and in France, of course, the immediate past wasn't like the English thinking about the Reformation or glamorising the civil wars. The, the immediate past was terrifying. And that sense of the antiquary as somebody who has his, usually his, hands on 
the levers of the past is much more serious. Makes me think of uh, Eustache Yassin's L'Anglois, one of the great characters in your book, um, who really wraps himself up in some of the sort of the dark mysteries of the antiquary. Uh, as you said, lived most of his life in a sort of indigent way of, with his uh, with his alcoholic wife and his children in the ruins of the convent of the Visitation in Rouen. Uh, Longois had trained as an artist, a student of Jacques David at one point, and then goes on to produce his own pretty remarkable etchings in the 1810s and 1820s, full of images of devils and sorcerers, uh, sometimes compared to Jacques Callot. And then from the late 1790s, sort of pieced together this very difficult existence in Rouen, where he also started acquiring uh, these remarkable collections, which become the heart of the Rouen Museum of Antiquities that eventually is going to open in the 1830s. He's a great draftsman. As I say, there are these kind of wonderful prints full of supernatural and macabre elements. And I do think the macabre dimension of the antiquarians is not far away, thinking about Francis Douse and the dance of death and so on. But strikingly, he also then goes on to inspire other figures in Normandy. And there are some kind of interesting allusions back to Longois in the work of the young uh, Gustave Flaubert. So there's a, there's a way in which Longois becomes a sort of counterculture figure, but nonetheless retains very close links and close friendships with people in Britain. He's invited at one point to join the Scottish Society of Antiquaries, I think, as a, as a measure of this kind of cross-channel conversation. Yes, he was also, he was invited, we taught Flaubert drawing. And there's a lovely drawing of the young Flaubert by Longlois. But yes, he was invited to join the English Society of Antiquaries. Um, somebody wrote to the director to say, was Longlois a gentleman? Um, he certainly wasn't. But Ga- John Gage, who was the director, thought was very fond of him and, of course, recommended him. And the other thing that Longlois represents in Anglo-French relationships is that in, if you read the French, the correspondence of his French friends, who were all saying, oh, honestly, you know, we, the people, he's so famous, he's so wonderful, and people come from England and they come to visit him and look what they find, you know, what they think of us in Rouen to let him live like this. And then in English accounts, you hear them saying, well, it's amazing, you know, the French, they just tolerate, they accept this man with all his eccentricity, aren't the French marvellous? And so there's a sort of mutual incomprehension, which is also rather reinforcing of benign stereotypes between the English and the French. And Longlois, in fact, was extremely, um, I think it was very difficult to get him to change his behaviour in any way. And of course, he's now buried next to Flaubert. He's got the bigger two, <laughs> as it turns out. Is this also related to the democratisation of history? I suppose the other great lesson of the revolutionary and the Napoleonic period is that ordinary people are being pulled into history irresistibly as conscripts, uh, as witnesses to history, but also that everything has a history. And I I suppose you get a glimpse of that that a little bit in the antiquarian work of somebody like Joseph Strutt in the 1790s, who was a real pioneer in thinking about people's history, you know, the history of dress, or the history of leisure, or the history of sports. I mean, is there a way in which what now is seen as historical is becoming much more encompassing, you know, much more inclusive? Well, that, I think, I agree about that. I mean, the difference in France with a figure like Longlois is that that then feeds into this new figure who is the Bohemian, and Longlois is literally an artist starving in an attic. So, you know, you don't get more bohemian than that. But I think the democratisation 
use an ugly word, but yes, that's true. And of course, it's absolutely essential to romanticism. Wordsworth and Coleridge in the beginning of the lyrical ballads are saying, we're going to write about ordinary people. We're not going to use poetic diction. And Strutt, who you mentioned, Joseph Strutt, who was the real pioneer, he was, unfortunately for Strutt, he was such a pioneer of the history of costume that nobody bought his first book. It was just a complete flop. But he then came back at a moment when people were beginning to be interested. And you have this romantic Gray's elegy view of all these unknown dead. And then people beginning to think, well, why, why are they unknown? I mean, we, we, we've got, if you, if you decide that you can make history not just from texts, then people who perhaps either couldn't read and write or didn't leave much of a written record, but they're no longer inaccessible because you can see what they built, you can work out what they ate, you can see how they dressed. So you can recover the past for these otherwise unknown lost people. And that is absolutely central, I think, to what was going on. So we get to the end of the Napoleonic Wars and clearly, as you say, we've got this very important new network between kind of Britain and Normandy. And I wonder how far can we say that the kind of the preservationists of 1789 at this point have triumphed? Like to what extent do you think, you know, the Gothic actually has been recognised as a key part of Britain's national cultural inheritance and that medieval buildings are now starting to get a kind of respect and indeed a kind of veneration that would have been unthinkable sort of 25 years before? Like how far is the Gothic in the ascendant uh, in the 1810s and 20s? Well, I think there are two things, aren't there? I mean, one is the Gothic and the moment at which the Palace of Westminster burnt down because for years people had been saying, if you don't restore it, there'll be a terrible accident. It's so interesting. How, and the, the MPs wouldn't move out and history is repeating itself there. But the decision to build a new Palace of Westminster, Houses of Parliament in the Gothic style was the moment when we get from Horace Walpole, with whom he and his friends and his immediate successors, this was a very private, rather outre gentleman's taste. Suddenly, it's this is a national public building becoming Gothic. So yes, the Gothic had prevailed. The idea of conservation had prevailed to some extent. Um, and certainly when York Minster caught fire, there was no suggestion that it would be nice to just knock some lumps off it and put on a nice neoclassical portico, which might have happened earlier. Wyatt was dead, but he had managed to destroy the absolutely pristine, until he got there, wall paintings in the Palace of Westminster. Um, he pickaxed them in an act of pure spite because the antiquaries had blackballed him from society. But he was dead, and I don't think he was much missed at the Society of Antiquaries. And it's often the case, I mean, that big victories of conservation begin with big defeats. And so, to some extent, of course, the antiquaries were defeated at Salisbury, and later on, it was the demolition of the Euston Arch that made the Victorian society possible. It was the Firestone factory that made the 30s society possible. Maybe there has to be a big loss. But what was unusual, what was different about Salisbury was that the whole concept of conservation hadn't really been thought about. And so and the whole concept of national monuments being of interest. And yes, the, the pendulum had definitely swung by the end. Though also, of course, Salisbury Cathedral, which was hailed by everyone, Constable Cobbett, it has now become this great symbol of Englishness, whether you were a radical like Cobbett or, or a Tory like Constable. But part of the reason that it looks so marvellous is the way that Wyatt recast the close. 
it, he did improve its setting, even though he knocked down the medieval bell tower, it did look better afterwards. So one has to admit it was a mixed legacy. As a, as a final thing, so we've got this vindication of medieval inheritance, this new attitude to conservation. But I think even in Britain, a country that doesn't have the revolutionary turmoil of France, there are some senses that the medieval inheritance might be vulnerable, or that even if the structures are safe, possibly the values that once underpinned those structures or that made those structures possible um, might be in retreat. Uh, I think it's Cobbett, when he looks up at um, Salisbury Cathedral in 1826, says, we could never build that now. You know, our times are too degenerate to produce a monument like this. Uh, and also you think in the 1820s of Constable obsessively drawing and painting images of Salisbury Cathedral. Um, why do you think he settles on it as a sort of symbol of both Englishness, but also maybe a kind of symbol of transition or a symbol of historical change uh, in the 1820s and 30s? Well, I think for Constable, it represented continuity. I mean, in one way, it was very simple, that he was great friends with the Fisher family and he spent a lot of time in Salisbury. Um, but also, yes, I think it, it had come, because it's unlike most of the medieval cathedrals, it was built in almost a single campaign. So it has a kind of um, unity about it. And also with its improved wietized setting, you can, it, it is very picturesque. And so aesthetically, it's very pleasing. But I think that Constable's sense of what it represented and to him of course to Cobbett Cobbett wanted a lot of radical reform Constable wanted radical Tory stability and when the Great Reform Act was struggling through he painted Salisbury under the stormy sky with a rainbow which rather sweetly lands in Fisher's house obviously his friend he feels will be the guarantee of of, of a good future for the church but no it, it is a focus throughout that and the first part of the 19th century even though the war was over it was extremely turbulent and there's a lot of civil unrest people moving into the cities People were very unsure, and the Middle Ages did seem to represent an ordered, hierarchical society. If you were a Tory, that was what was appealing about it. If you were a radical, it represented a time when the common man um, could build such great things. Constable's great picture makes me think... Uh, not just of the other efforts to celebrate cathedrals at exactly this time. You know, if we were talking about Germany, we'd be thinking about Schinkel's great images of cathedrals or the rebuilding of Cologne Cathedral after Napoleon. Um, but it also makes me think, like, how has the role of the antiquarian changed? And that whereas in 1789, the antiquarians are there out lobbying for these buildings, um, exactly as you suggest, Rosemary, we're about to enter a mid-Victorian world where kind of the fight for the Middle Ages is actually less about these sort of specialists. It's less about sort of particular learned groups, although they're involved, but it's becoming part of a much bigger political programme. It's really entering a kind of political mainstream. Thank you, Tom. And next time I'll be talking to Colin Kidd about Balmoral. Thank you for listening. This series was inspired by Rosemary Hill's book, Time's Witness. To buy a copy from the London Review Bookshop, just go to lrb.me forward slash hill or click on the link below.